Well, hey, church, how we doing? Good to see you guys this morning. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles. And uh, we're going to be in Romans 6, but I'm going to turn you actually back to the start of the book. If you would just take a moment and find your way to Romans 1. Uh, from the beginning of the New Testament, it is um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then the book of Romans written by Paul. If you don't have a Bible, there's ushers coming down the aisle. Um, just raise your hand. They'll get a copy of God's Word into your hand. We are in the third week of a series that we started after Easter called How People Change. And an argument that we're going to be making from now until the end of June is the purpose of the gospel is not just to save you, but the, but the intent of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel is to change you. The, the first week of this series, Cal talked and he made an argument. He said, if we're going to lay a foundation for this study, you have to make a choice. You've got to decide what your truth source is. In our culture, people will tell you that we all got to find our own truth and that you have your truth and I have my truth and truth is relative. And I would just say, nonsense. The Bible's very, very clear. Cal pointed you to a text in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus Christ, as creator of this universe, gets to be the one who decides what is real. And the truth source doesn't exist inside of us. We have to look outside of ourselves. Truth is objective, not subjective. And then Cal made an argument in his message that I thought was important. When you open God's word, which hopefully we all have in front of us right now to Romans 1, we can trust God's word. That it has been um, throughout the centuries with authenticity, with authority, and with accuracy, it has been translated. We can trust the word of God that's in our hands. Taylor last week talked about the idea that we have the power to change. And as he started our series in Romans 6, we're going to be spending the next uh, four or five weeks in Romans 6, 7, and 8. We're laying a foundation. And then the second half of the series, we're going to be spending time looking at specific issues like how do we experience victory over anxiety, over depression, over impulsiveness, over anger. These type of topics, very, very specific. But if you don't get the foundation right, the, the best you can hope for in those areas is what, what I would call behavior modification, that you'll see a, a little bit better season or a little bit better attitude for a short season. You can modify your behavior, but if you want to experience real change, heart change, that's what we're after, right? It starts with understanding that the foundation for truth and the power to change is found in the gospel in Jesus Christ. So what I want to do just for a minute is give you a little bit of background into Romans. Romans in chapter 1, chapter 2, all the way to chapter 8, Paul is giving the most detailed um, explanation of what it means to be saved, what it means to be a follower of Christ that you can find anywhere in the Bible. He starts in Romans 1.1 by saying this. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. A couple things from that verse. Do you see how Paul identifies himself? Do you see the, the lens in which Paul views himself? He says, listen, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I've been set apart for the gospel of God. And then when he talks about this gospel, it's really interesting how he describes the gospel or how he defends it in verses two and three. He says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's what Paul's just done in the first three verses. He says, listen, I am completely identified by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am a servant of Christ Jesus. And the reason that I believe in the gospel is twofold because Jesus came, lived, he's an actual person and he fulfilled the prophets and the prophecies of the Old Testament. And the other reason that I believe in him is because he conquered death. He rose from the dead. We have an empty grave. So Paul is believing the gospel, which he has given his life for, not because it's some theoretical construct or something we believe. He says, our gospel is rooted in historical fact. It is written in the person and the life of Jesus Christ. And then what he does is he kind of explains what our condition is before we accept Christ But as we go through Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, what I want you to see really, and it's important as we start, who Paul's audience is. Look at what he says in verse 5 of Romans 1. He says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. He's writing to we, those of us who have received grace. In verse 6, he says, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. In verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That is, in verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. All of Romans, this this big explanation of the gospel, it's not being given to unsaved people to convince them to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. He's giving it to believers. His audience are, are, are Christians. And the reason that he's writing it is he's saying, listen, you need to understand this because God's asking you to change. That's Romans 1. Later in Romans 1, he will write these verses. In verse 21, he says... Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 24, because of this, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. You see that three times? God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. There's a downward spiral to sin. As we make choices of who we're going to follow, who we choose, or how we choose to live, it says, when you reject God, he just continues to give you up. And and what that means is he basically lets you go your own way. But like, that's the thing you want to choose. Like, that's what you think will make you happy. Go chase it. See where that leads. I've had that exact same conversation with people in counseling rooms at this church over 13 years. I'm meeting with somebody, they're talking to me, they're troubled, they're making life decisions, and quite honestly, they're choosing things that are really bad choices. And they know it. But they want to be coddled, they want to be comforted, they want me to bless their poor decisions. And I've sat in counseling rooms and going, you continue to go down that path, you're not going to like where it leads. But they continue to argue, they continue to defend, and eventually I just get to the point, I'm like, hey, why don't you just go chase that for a while? Chase it. Give your entire heart to it. See where it leads. And when you get to a dead end where that is eventually going to lead, we're still going to be here. 
Come back because you're not ready at this point to make the choice that God's calling you to do. By the way, they don't let me counsel a ton anymore because of these kind of conversations, <laughs> but, but they've happened. They've happened. And you watch people train wreck their lives and God just lets them go. They let him pursue those things. Chapter two in Romans is interesting. He's, he's kind of writing to the Jews and he's like, quit judging the Gentiles. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. Don't presume on God's grace. Just because he chose you, just because he gave you the law doesn't put you in some great position. The law does a way better job of condemning you than saving you. The law was never meant to be our savior. It was to point us to our need for a savior. And then he drives that point home in Romans 3. And in Romans 3, we read verses like verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What he's saying is none of us measure up. All of us, because the law reveals our sinfulness, all of us are in desperate need of a savior. And then in chapter four, he gives this big illustration about Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. And he says, even Abraham, whom God chose, he wasn't saved because of his works. He was saved because of his faith. It was faith that justified Abraham. And then in chapter 5, we read this in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you go through chapter 5, it's all the benefits that we have because of our faith in Christ. Verse 1, I just read it, peace. Verse 2, we have access to God. We have joy. We have hope. Verses 3 and 4, there's purpose to our suffering. Verse 5, we're given the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, we're justified. We're saved. Verses 10 and 11, we've been reconciled to a holy God. And then in verses 12 through 21, though death reigned because of Adam's sin, it infected and polluted all of us. Christ defeated death and now righteousness reigns. It's all of God. And then we get to Romans 6 and last week Taylor addressed the question that starts chapter 6. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Today, I pick it up in verse 15. You get a similar question. It says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? And then the answer, by no means. Well, those are weird questions. Should we just continue to sin now after everything that Christ has done? They're not illogical questions. By the way, they're great questions if you understand the gospel and you understand grace. In essence, the way our minds work is it's like, listen, if Christ did everything, if we can't do anything for ourselves, if all of our righteousness is based on what he accomplished in our place, then what difference does it make if we change? Why don't we just keep on sinning? More we sin, more grace. Like these are logical questions based off the gospel, which Paul has just Laid out. By the way, if you're not asking yourself these questions at some point when you're tempted by sin, you probably don't understand grace. You've mucked up the gospel somewhere. Simply stated, the gospel, the power to save is all because of what Jesus has accomplished. And I'm going to push this a little bit in this series. Your power to change is completely dependent on Jesus working in you. Summary verses, Paul writes to the church in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that faith isn't of yourself. It is a gift of God. It's not dependent on works. So that no man 
can boast. God gets the glory for all of it. It's interesting, our passage, he says this, he says, what then, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. That, that little phrase, under law, we can find it seven different times in the New Testament. Once here, once in Corinthians, and five times in the book of Galatians. Uh, the Jews understood what it meant to live under the law. They'd spent their entire history living under the law sacrificial system, what they were required to do. Every religious system that's ever been created by man is basically designed to say, here's the things that we need to do to become acceptable to God. Living under law based off your performance. He goes, we're not under law anymore. And you get this unique term only used here in the New Testament. Do you want to be under law or do you want to be under grace? To live under grace means that we boast that our our only standing before a holy God is because of who we've put our faith in, in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived under the law. He completely fulfilled the law so that we could live under grace. So where does this leave us as it relates to change? And if you're keeping notes, here's the first note. I'm done with the review. Here's the first note. Time to choose. You've got to serve somebody. Look at verse 16. It says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone, his obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves to righteousness. There's a choice. Who are you going to choose to serve? You've got to serve somebody. So, so just a question for you guys, just seeing if you're alert to what's going on in culture. If I were to ask you, in our lifetimes of, of living songwriters, who's the greatest of all time? Who would you answer? Who would you answer? Just shout out some names. Bill Gaither. Um, wrong. Johnny Cash. What? No, no. Uh, last night, last night, somebody yelled out, Billy Joel. When I say somebody, I mean my daughter. And I'm like, ah, she's close. She's, 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 it might be. Taylor Swift, no, it's not Taylor Swift. By the way, I can make an argument. It's Bob Dylan. Without a doubt, there, there's no debate. He's the greatest songwriter in our lifetime. And here's why I say that. Like, here's his trump card that nobody else has. He's the only songwriter in history to win the Nobel Peace Prize in literature. He won it in 2016. It's Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan has done 39 studio albums. His last one is called Rough and Rowdy Ways. It was critically acclaimed. He released it in 2020 at the age of 79. Do you know where Bob Dylan is today? He's in Japan performing to packed out stadiums. He'll be in Europe all summer. He's 82 years old. He's releasing his 40th studio album in two months. Nobody's close to Bob Dylan. And and can I just tell you something from my perspective? I think he's awful. (laughs) Do you guys like listen to his music? I mean, that is not a gifted voice. 
Now, he might be a great songwriter, and, and I'm not really all that attached to Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man. I don't get him. I'll, I'll just admit that. I always kind of had this theory that to like Bob Dylan, you probably had to be a little high. I've never tested the theory, <laughs> but that, that was what I've always believed. But, but, but I, one of our worship leaders, I don't want to mention him because I don't want to embarrass him, but Taylor really likes him, okay? <laughs> So, so I'm going to assume that people can like him without being stoned. I, greatest of all time. Now, now, some of you have seen in the last few weeks or a month or so, there's been this movie, The Jesus Revolution, that's been in theaters. Maybe some of you have seen it. Story kind of of Greg Laurie and uh, the start of Calvary Chapel. Well, well, Dylan, being a songwriter in the 60s and 70s, he got caught up in this movement, actually was a part of the Vineyard Movement in the late 70s. I don't speak to where his spiritual condition is now. I think sometimes we get really excited when we think we see change in celebrities, but I think you want to wait a little bit to be sure on that. I don't know where Dylan is now. That's called the Kanye principle, by the way, okay? Um, but, but here's the deal. In 1980... He won his first Grammy, Rock Singer of the Year, Album of the Year. And what made that interesting was it was based off an album that he wrote in 1979 called Slow Train Coming. It was a Christian album. A lot of Christian lyrics throughout his album. And the lead song, the first song on that album was called Gotta Serve Somebody. Now, and I've never thought of Dylan as much of a theologian, but, but in this song on this album... He, he kind of nails it. He said, um, well, last night I got to this point and somebody said, sing it. <laughs> and, and you don't want to hear me sing, though I still think I'd be better than Dylan. I don't think that's a high bar. But he says, you, you got to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. He, he wasn't wrong. The, this text is presenting us with a choice. But before we even get to what the choice is, can I, can I give you some good news? We have a choice. Before Christ, you have no choice on who you're going to serve. If you haven't accepted Christ, if you haven't given your life to Christ, you can choose to live a moral life. You can choose to try to do the right things, but don't fool yourself. You can't be pleasing to God. You're like, how dare you? How could you say that? I'm not saying it. Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Before Christ, you have no choice. Because of Christ, being in Christ, we now find ourselves in this wonderful position. Paul is writing to believers in Ephesians 6, and he's saying, man, you got to serve somebody. You, you have to make a choice. You have the ability to choose. And the question that we need to ask ourselves in this room is, now that we're believers, what is going to be our relationship to sin? Are we going to assume upon God's grace that he'll continue to sin? Or can we actually experience change? In Christ, we have the ability to choose. He says in verse 19, he goes, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Okay, the, just so you understand these couple of verses, they use the word your members. That means your limbs, your appendages. What, what Paul is saying is where you go, the things that you do, yield them. 
You used to give them to sin. Now give them to righteousness. Make a choice. This is an imperative in the text. He is asking you to do something. He's saying quit going to those places that lead to sin. Quit doing those things that are impure, that represent lawlessness. Well, why would we make this choice? Like, like, like where do these choices lead? Well, you can watch, you can observe if you pay attention where each of these two choices lead. Here's the first choice that you can make. You can choose to live your life in a very selfish manner. You can put yourself on the throne. Look at what he says in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have to worry about following Christ. Just just live for yourself. But look at verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Now, the text uses words like this. It says, why did you choose to be slaves to impurity, to sin, to lawlessness? I use the word self there. Because quite honestly, it's straight out of the text, something that Paul said earlier in Romans 2.8. He's contrasting following Christ and he uses this term, you can either follow Christ or you can be self-seeking. And I think the choice to sin, the choice to live lawless lives, the choice to continue to give yourself to impurity, all of that's under the umbrella of self-seeking, of living for self. To live for self means you get to do whatever you want to do. You're pursuing the things that you believe will make you happy. So so, so what does this look like? What does it look like for God to continue to hand you over to your own selfishness? We don't have to look very far, do we? We can look around our culture. Our culture is embraced and this is a virtue that everybody should be allowed to do whatever they want. That that, that my job is to affirm you and the choices that you make. These are the things that our culture is embracing as we look around today. For me to argue or to try to change you, by the way, that would be considered oppressive. In many circles, what I'm saying would be unsafe. It's interesting, over 13 years... I've watched people come to our church. I've watched them get on fire. I've watched, in some cases, them give their life to Christ. I've seen growth. And then they leave. I've seen their marriages restored. I've seen them in soul care. I've seen a lot of change. I'm very, very encouraged by their story. It's quite a testimony. Some of them are in our old God at Work archives. And then they leave. And usually when those people leave... I'm just going to be really honest with you. They leave mad. And and somebody will alert me that, oh, somebody's saying something about harvest. It's online. Somebody's on a Facebook post. And somebody will forward me something. And they usually read kind of like this. Usually the people are nice. They don't mention us by name. But they'll be like, I was involved in a church for several years. And they just refused to accept me for who I am. They, They were constantly trying to change me. I didn't feel like I was safe because I was always being a challenge because they refused to affirm who I was. And I read that, and it saddens me, but please hear me, they're not wrong. 
When you get together as a church, I'm going to appeal to you every time I have the opportunity to preach. God doesn't want to just have the gospel save you. He wants it to change you. That's why we come together as a church. I want to change. I want to experience victory in areas of my life that have plagued me. Don't you? Isn't that why we're here as a church? If we're not here to change, why bother? The role of the church is to make disciples. We don't want to stay the same. We don't want to find ourselves in patterns of thinking or patterns of behavior where God just gives us over to selfishness because of where it leads. The, the text, as you, as you choose to follow self, it gives two places where it leads. Verse 21 says it leads to shame. It says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things from which you are now ashamed? I, I tell you what, when you choose to live a selfish lifestyle, in the moment it seems like a wise choice, but what you find is you get an attachment of shame that you cannot shake when we live selfish lives. That's what the text declares. And then we read in verses 16, verse 21, and verse 23, don't choose to live for self because its end is eventually death. Eternal death, and I would actually argue that sometimes people are dead long before they die. Wouldn't you agree? So, so let's test what Paul's saying. Let's look around. Let's be students of our culture. We're going to do an examination. We're going to compare the sheeps and the goats for a minute. And when I say sheeps and goats, I don't mean baas and what sound do goats make? Not nays, whatever. I'm not talking that. I'm talking, let's compare the followers of Jesus to the goats, to the greatest of all time. In the different fields, wherever you look, where people have excelled, where they've reached the apex of whatever their profession is, whatever their pursuits are, let's ask ourselves the question, when we study these people, are they happy? Let's look at music for a minute. Some of the greatest artists of our generation Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Kurt Cobain, Billie Eilish, Taylor Swift. I'm telling you, those girls don't seem happy. Maybe I'm wrong. Those that have reached the apex of celebrity, of fame, and success, are they happy people? I haven't even mentioned country music. <laughs> like, like, serious. Look around. The stories often end tragically, and the younger you experience this level of fame and this level of success and this level of glory, usually it doesn't end well. How about the comedians, the guys that make us laugh? The John Belushi's, the Chris Farley's, the Robin Williams, that guy was funny. Richard Pryor. How many really funny men do we have to watch die miserably unhappy deaths? How long till we start to believe that what the gospel says is really true? How about the billionaires? Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk. You guys, you guys reading anything about these guys? Their family life? What drives them? How their marriages are doing? You guys paying attention? It's interesting, in a magazine called The Independent in March 22, they interviewed Elon Musk, 
They asked him if he was happy. Listen to his response. He said, I think there are degrees of love, but certainly for one to be fully happy, I think you have to be happy at work and happy in love. So I suppose I'm medium happy. I would argue that he is very rich, but only medium happy. The article goes on to describe, it says, Mr. Musk recently split with the musician Grimes, with whom he shares two children, and said he often only has his dog for company. Are they really happy? You got two of those guys shooting rockets into space like every other week. Have you noticed that? Trying to leave a legacy, trying to expand our horizons, leave, save the world or the planet, whatever it is. You got Bill Gates with all of his money and everybody that's aligned with Bill Gates. He's trying to save the, the planet. He wants us to get away from cows and eat synthetic meat. Have you tasted that stuff? Come on, Bill. They're trying to create a legacy. They're trying to connect with something bigger than themselves. They're trying to solve the eternal longing of their soul. Centuries ago, a man by the name of Solomon was on the same pursuit. Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with its income. This is all vanity. More of what I currently have that's not satisfying me. If I had more of it, I'm not going to become more satisfied with the very things that don't satisfy me today. Look at politics. How about our top politicians? Do they seem happy? You ever watch how presidents age over four years? Why is it that you see all these billionaires who want to enter politics? It's the allure of power. Why do we see all these politicians who want to use their power to become rich? It's the allure of money, always chasing the other thing that they think that they're missing that will make them happy. How about sports? Who's the greatest football player of any, all time? Somebody yell it out. Okay, that was easy. It's not Barry Sanders. Somebody did that last night too. You, Detroit people are messed up. I'm just, it's not Barry Sanders. Okay, it's Tom Brady. That's an easy, I threw you a bunny. But here's the interesting thing. If you went back a generation, many would have argued it was O.J. Simpson. He was the first athlete across any sport to kind of break the racial barrier. He was an advertiser that was beloved by all. The guys running through airports, chasing rental cars. Everybody loved OJ. He examined their lives. Greatest golfer, Tiger Woods. Greatest cyclist, Lance Armstrong. Greatest baseball hitter I ever saw, easy. Barry Bonds Jr., check the stats. Greatest baseball pitcher I ever saw, Roger Clemens. What's the legacy? Steroids. Cheating, needing an advantage. I need to heal a little faster. I need to get a little stronger. I need to throw or pedal a little faster. Greatest decathlete in my lifetime, Bruce Jenner. Greatest basketball player, Michael Jordan. Don't even think about it, okay? <laughs> it's Michael Jordan. It's interesting. Gentleman, an author by the name of David Zarin, he, he, he got close to Michael Jordan. He, he got to deserve, observe this guy as he was writing from up close. Listen to what he says. Michael Jordan just turned 60. This is written 10 years ago. At the time, he turned 50. Listen to what my, D David Zarin says. He goes, from a distance, Jordan's existence must resemble fantasy. An athlete who accumulated enough wealth to make ultimate transition from NBA player to the NBA owner. Yet there is little to admire about Michael Jordan at 50. 
If anything, the more you learn, the more you recoil. We all know the story of the pro athlete who ends up bankrupt. But what happens to the athlete who gains the world yet still stews in a state of perpetual dissatisfaction? This is Jordan. If you're living a selfish life, if you're striving for self, you're going to eventually fall into one of two groups. You're going to believe, you're going to be in the group that believes just a little bit more success, a little bit more fame, a little bit more money, a little bit more applause, and you'll be happy. Or you're going to find yourself in the group that achieves the wealth, the applause, the fame that they desired, and you're still miserable. It's the only two places you're going to end up. And I know some of you are like, did I really come to church to hear about Bob Dylan and Michael Jordan? Yes. Because sometimes we've got to look around and see if the things that our culture is trying to sell to us, if they deliver what they promised. And Paul's making the argument, you can chase self. That can be the thing that is on the throne of your life. It doesn't end anywhere good. It ends in shame. It ends in death. It's interesting, this last week, I was vacationing with Cal and Mary and four of my grandkids down in the Bahamas. And I brought a book with me in anticipation for the sermon. So I'm sitting by a pool in the Bahamas and I'm reading this book. The title of the book is The Last Words of Saints and Sinners. Some really nice light pool reading. Okay? But it it chronicles the last words of famous people throughout history. Saints and sinners. Thomas Paine was one of our country's forefathers. Incredibly gifted author. Revolutionary. He was a deist. Although he believed in God, he rejected Christianity. He rejected the Bible and Jesus. He wrote a book called The Age of Reason that argued vehemently against Christianity. Here's here's his last words as recorded by those who attended to him. He said, I would give worlds if I had them that the age of reason had never been published. Oh Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Oh God, what have I done to suffer so much? But there is no God. But if there should be, what will become of me hereafter? Stay with me for God's sake. Even send a child to stay with me, for it is hell to be alone. If the devil ever had an agent, I have been that one. French revolutionary philosopher, writer by the name of Voltaire, lived earlier in the 17th century, vehemently hated Christianity. Of Christ, he said, curse the wretch. Of Christianity, it has been said that he said, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. As he laid on his deathbed, his attending physician recorded his last words. He said this, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I'm worth if you will give me six months life. Then I shall go to hell and you shall go with me, O Christ. The nurse that attended to Voltaire during his last days was quoted in saying, For all the wealth in Europe, I will not see another infidel die. Is Paul lying when he confronts you with two choices? Don't choose self. It leads to shame and it leads to death. Sometimes you're dead before you die. There has to be a better option. It's interesting if you follow the story that followed Voltaire's death. Very rich Frenchman owned several houses. Within one lifetime, within 30, 40 years after he died, his home, his main residence, became the home of the Geneva Bible Society. 
It became a distribution center for Bibles translated into French throughout the country. There's got to be a better choice. Paul says in verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin, we have a choice. And it becomes slaves to God. The fruit that uh, you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So what does it look like? Well, verse 16, following Jesus means that we're going to choose uh, every day, every week, every hour, sometimes every minute. I'm not my own boss. Jesus is the boss. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to live an obedient life. And, and I don't want you to miss this because this is key. What it says there is it says, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. That word sanctification, that's a theological fancy word for change. If we're going to really change, it begins with the choice of who is on the throne. Is it us or are we living? As Paul described, I'm a servant of God. I'm given to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the question, the big question if you're keeping notes. How would our lives be different if we really believed the gospel? We really believed that the gospel was true. If Jesus did for us what we're told that he did, how would our lives be different if we really believed the gospel? Do we, do we really believe Jesus when he says in John 10, 10, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly? See, that's the argument Paul makes. The world and our culture is going to argue the exact opposite, but stay awake. Where does it lead? The people that have chosen to live selfish lifestyles, how does it end? It's interesting. There was a gentleman by the name of Polycarp. He lived a long time ago. Jesus had as one of his disciples, his best friend, his beloved disciple, John. Polycarp was John's disciple. Jesus discipled John. John discipled Polycarp. We're told by the church historian Isubius, it records that Polycarp was in prison near the end of his life, and he was demanded by the Roman proconsul to swear allegiance to Caesar. He was commanded, and I quote, he was told, swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. What that quote doesn't tell you is, the alternative that he was faced. If he refused to reproach Christ and swear allegiance to Jesus, as an 86-year-old man, he would die burning at the stake alive. Polycarp responded with these words. He said, 80 and six years have I now served Christ and he has never done me the least wrong. How then can I blaspheme? my King and Savior. For a moment, just take the writer of Romans, the book we've been studying, the Apostle Paul. Do you guys remember the book of Romans? Where's he writing it from? From prison. Why is he in prison? For the gospel. How will his prison sentence end? Well, he knows it, we know it. It ends in his execution. What was Paul before he was saved? Well, he was a Pharisee, which meant he had power, he had wealth, he was well-respected. And in some of Paul's last words, Romans 8.18 records, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
He writes to the church in Philippi from the same Roman jail cell that he wrote Romans. He says, whatever gain I had in that previous life, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul, through his words and through his writings, he is making an argument. He is reaching through time into this room today and saying, you gotta make a choice. You gotta serve somebody. You serve the person whose deeds you follow and you can choose yourself, you can choose sin and it leads to death and to shame. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we've got this great alternative. Why don't we put Christ on the throne? Why don't we commit ourselves to obedience? And when we make that choice, there's a promise in the text. Not only will you be granted life, you'll be changed. That's what we're after. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Teach us to be students of your word. Teach us to open our eyes and look at our culture and see what's going on and the despair. Father, I thank you that I can open your word and when it promises something, it delivers. Father, I thank you for your son, his work on the cross, the fact that he defeated death, he fulfilled the law so that we can be here this morning with a choice. Father, give us the courage to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.